Hello, welcome to the Collaborative Inquiries podcast. This podcast comes to you as part of the Collaborative Inquiries in Christian Theological Anthropology project funded by the John Templeton Foundation and Villanova University. This podcast series will introduce you, the listeners, to the Collaborative Inquiries project fellows and mentors, as well as other established scholars whose research deals with topics such as human nature, virtues and vices, economics, race, disability, memory, human psychology, sin, and grace. We hope that they will be illuminating. My name is Dylan Belton, currently a postdoctoral fellow at Villanova University and participant in the Collaborative Inquiries Project. It is my pleasure to be your host for today's discussion. Our guest today is Dr. Augustine Fuentes, professor of anthropology at Princeton University. Before taking his position at Princeton in 2020, Dr. Fuentes was professor of anthropology at the University of Notre Dame, where he served as the chair of the anthropology department from 2013 to 2020. He is a prolific scholar whose research focuses on the entanglement of biological systems with the social and cultural lives of humans, our ancestors, and a few of the other animals with whom humanity shares close relations. Among his many publications, his most recent include The Creative Spark, How Imagination Made Humans Exceptional, 2017, and Why We Believe, Evolution in the Human Way of Being. 2019. Initially delivered as the prestigious Gifford Lectures in Edinburgh in 2018. His current projects include exploring cooperation, creativity, and the role of belief in human evolution, multi-species anthropologies, and engaging race and racism. He was recently awarded the inaugural Communication and Outreach Award from the American Association of Physical Anthropologists, the President's Award for the American Anthropological Association, and elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Having long engaged in interdisciplinary scholarship with philosophers and theologians, Dr. Fuentes is also currently serving as a mentor for the Collaborative Inquiries in Theological Anthropology Project. It is a great pleasure to have him on today's podcast. All right, Augustine Fuentes, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. So it's a, it's a special treat for me to be able to interview you. Augustine was um, on my dissertation committee, and I also took a class with Augustine when I was a PhD student, I believe in my first year, and that was orientations to biological anthropology, if I got that right. Yep. And so that class was a, a total game changer for me as a student. It, um, it not, on, not only learned a lot about anthropology and anthropologists, I also actually began to think fundamentally different, differently as a theologian. So I can say that, you know, Augustine is a, is a prolific scholar, a great scholar, but he's also a fantastic teacher. So it's a real treat for me to be able to interview you. Thanks, Dylan. I, I really appreciate it. And it was a joy to be on your dissertation committee. Your dissertation was fantastic. So I'd say we have a mutual admiration society going on here. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. So I thought we'd begin with just some, um, you know, autobiographical detail about you. So why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? You know, I'm primarily interested in how you got into anthropology. I mean, I think it's really important to point out that most people who get into anthropology have no idea anthropology as a discipline existed before college. Um, I, I had heard the term anthropology and, in fact, had read quite a bit of anthropological work um, before coming to university. But it was really at university that I began to realize that this, in fact, was a, an, an option as a mode of scholarship or as a disciplinary context. Um, and, and what really was amazing is I, I took a few classes and I was like, wow, this is really incredible. But it was one a primate behavior class, a primate social behavior class taught by uh, the, the scholar who would eventually be my dissertation advisor, my main advisor, Phyllis Dolanow. 
um, where on the first day of class, she's standing up in front of 130 students and she's lecturing about the social lives of humans, of chimpanzees and of langur monkeys. And she's talking about this incredible sort of complexity, amazingness. And as she's talking, something strikes me. I say to myself, whoa, whoa, what's weird? What's different? And I say, oh, you know what? She's using the female pronoun in her entire discourse here. I have never, ever heard a professor use she to describe other humans or other uh, organisms in a sort of general lecture format. This is interesting. And then by the end of that lecture, once she talked about evolutionary context, about social behavior, about history, about sort of political ideologies around sort of studying uh, humans and other animals, I was sold. I was like, this is a thing? You can actually study this? Um, and, and so at the time, I was already a, a biology and zoology major. Um, so I added the anthropology track to that. And then from there, it's just been nonstop, pretty much the same stuff. Okay, so that and that was at Berkeley, right? Yeah, you U at University Berkeley? of California, Berkeley. Okay. I actually did two undergraduate degrees there uh, over the course of five years, then a master's and then a PhD. Okay, <laughs> and and your PhD work that was with, if I correct me if I'm wrong, the CACs or or um... no, no, it was with a. It's actually the PhD itself is focused largely on a very rare primate, a monkey called Presbytus potenziani, the Mentawi Island Langer. Um, but the right. project itself was as much about social evolution and evolutionary theory around monogamy and pair bonding. It was also about human ecology and ecosystem use, sort of tropical ecology, human foraging and hunting groups in tropical ecosystems. So all of that came together in the dissertation, even though ostensibly my original goal was to go out and stare at some monkeys. Uh, it turned out that the world is a lot more complicated than that. Mm. So, okay, so um, you you would define yourself as a biological evolutionary anthropologist, right? Yeah, and that's, I think, I think um, that's, that's a good general realm that captures a good chunk of what I do. Okay, good. But, but for, those of, uh, for those who don't know too much about anthropology, that's only one area within anthropology. So um, I'm wondering if you could perhaps say, but for those who don't know too much about anthropology but as a discipline, about the different areas within anthropology, I mean, how, I mean, how did it get that way? That's also a question I'm interested in. And um, so I, I'm, yeah, I'm so yeah, I'm, I'm rooted. At, I, my training is is rooted in, in anthropology. Is is rooted in what's called the North American anthropology, which is often referred to as a four field or possibly five field. Uh, discipline that is the subfields of biological anthropology that is human biology, evolutionary anthropology, the sort of connection between humans and other primates or other organisms. Uh, that's biological anthropology. Um, uh, archaeology is the study of the material past, right? And the social and structural aspects of humanity that are evidenced in that past. Um, social cultural anthropology is the sort of the focus on ethnographic engagement that is the social and cultural lives of contemporary humans. Uh, and then linguistic anthropology, of course, the anthropological engagement with language, semantics, semiotics, those kinds of contexts. Uh, and, and currently, there's also a fifth field where people think of as applied anthropology that is taking all this anthropological knowledge and making it relevant or applying it in, in practical policy or other related concepts. Mm -hmm. So in North America, that emerged out of the sort of um, uh, the interactions between uh, uh, um, 
uh, Franz Boas, uh, Alfred Krober, and others who sort of saw the integrative nature of um, anthropology and sort of focused students in these different areas, right? Biological, archaeological, linguistic, and social cultural. Um, but that's not characteristic of anthropology globally. Um, in many parts of the world, anthropology is only the sort of social culture component, or it's a social cultural and a biological component, or archaeology mm -hmm. is a separate area. The bottom line is that anthropology is the integrative or holistic approach to the human. And in order to do that, you need to draw on these very disparate modes of thinking, modes of theory, modes of methodology. Um, and, and to do all of that, you have to be open to and acknowledge that there are multiple ways to ask questions about the human past, present, and future, and that integrating diverse theoretical and methodological toolkits is necessary to get the best possible answers. And so that's that's really what drew me to anthropology, not the subdivisions, not the interscene fighting, right, between which kind of anthropology is better, but more the promise of this integrative toolkit um, when combined with evolutionary approaches and broader ecological approaches, and of course, philosophical approaches, uh, allows us, I think, to get closer to the range of more interesting answers and questions about what it means to be human. So do you think do you think anthropologists, at least in your experience in the North American context, do you think anthropologists live up to that ideal of the integrative approach or is, are there still kind of divisions and fights? I mean, you know, theology has different disciplines and sometimes internal disciplines and sometimes we don't always talk, um, even though we would like to think that we also integrative. It doesn't always work out that way. So um, is it an ideal and uh, it is a workout always in your in your experience or not so much? Well, let's put it this way. I learned to be an integrative anthropologist and to commit my entire academic career to that at University of California, Berkeley. And in that department at the time, there were scholars from the different disciplines who wouldn't walk by each other in the hall, who would, who would rather strangle oh, each other than see each other or share a kind word. Um, so yeah, I mean, as in any academic discipline, there's, there's contention, but anthropology has a history of being contentious for a good reason, right? I mean, there's some horrible things in past and contemporary anthropology and some wonderful things. Um, so there's a lot of interesting fighting. Um, but, you know, let people who want to fight about who's right and who's wrong and which is the better theory or method to, to, to undertake, let them go and fight in a corner. I'd rather do an integrative anthropological engagement. And I think that perspective um, has always been part of anthropology. It's probably why anthropology is still successful. Um, and in the future, I think it's going to become more and more um, central. Right. No, and that's, I mean, my own experience is, is precisely that it's this aspect of anthropology that was so um, um, challenging for me. And it also changed the way I thought this kind of constant um, integrative imagination, so to speak. And I think your, your work on the niche, and we can talk about it later, your, your, your work on the niche and niche construction, is, it seems to me, a, is an exemplification of this kind of thinking. Yeah. And, I, and okay, I, think, I wanted to, I wanted to oh, go God, for it. Let me go just add a, a final thing here. And that is, you know, it's not that interseen conflict within a discipline is a bad thing, right? I think sometimes really being pushed to understand, to clarify, I mean, theologians know that quite well, right? You, you know, yeah, what sure. are your yeah. normative assumptions? What are you bringing to the table and why is it the case and can you justify them? I, I think that's really important. I just, when it spills over into personal vehement attacks, that's the problem. Uh, academics right. forget 
that they're not brain surgeons um, and they're not, you know, uh, UN policymakers. I think they have to remember that sometimes the academic debate is not as serious as they think it is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> okay. So continue with this theme. I, I, I want to ask a bit about anthropology's relation to the larger university context and also the wider public sphere. So what I have in mind here is that you know, anthropology, as far as I understand, in the, let's say, the mid-20th century, maybe even before that a bit, was a very public um, discipline with a, lot of, with a lot of very prominent thinkers. So I'm thinking here of people like um, Margaret Mead, I mean, Mary Douglas, I think. I don't know about Franz Boas. I don't know how well he knows. But these were very public yeah. names, you know, whose yeah. ideas were out there. And it seems like over the last few decades, at least, things shifted to the, so that we had the, the the main scientific thinkers who became kind of public intellectuals were biologists and then physicists maybe as well. And I feel like anthropology lost a bit of its um, its uh, notoriety, so to speak, within the public domain. So how, does that does that make sense to you? And do you have a do you have any explanation for what might have happened here? Yeah, let me add two more names to that prominent Zora Neale Hurston, which uh, most people don't don't recognize was an anthropologist. Most people think of her as American novelist, but she was an anthropologist um, uh, and, a, and a really good one. Um, and uh, Ashley Montague, two other very prominent uh, sort of mid-century uh, anthropologists. So yeah, uh, up through the 1970s, maybe even early 80s, uh, Margaret Mead and others, um, the, the an anthropology held its place in the public discourse, right? Um, when news chat shows or, you know, when people wanted expertise on issues of the day related to, to humanity, people talked to anthropologists. Uh, today, they talk to psychologists, um, certain kinds of psychologists. They talk to political scientists and they talk to economists. Um, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't talk to those individuals, but it concerns me very much that they almost only always talk to those individuals. Um, I'd like mm -hmm. to suggest that anthropology, with its interesting fighting, particularly in the 90s, um, cut itself off a little bit from public engagement and also turned itself in much more to the sort of academic world and stopped valuing the sort of need to engage, to translate sort of intellectual or academic information into the broader accessible public formats. Um, and in doing so, I think we did a great disservice to ourselves as anthropologists and to the world at large. Um, so right now, the world is very interested, especially in, in the English language world. Um, and here I'm thinking primarily about, uh, let's say, the United States, Australia, the UK. Very interested in, in simplistic takes on very complex topics. So we're in a mode where uh, soundbite and the sort of extreme reductive synthesis of knowledge into an easily digestible packet has become prominent. Uh, and anthropologists have trouble doing that for good reason, right? The world is complicated and messy, right? Humans are messy creatures. Um, yet economists and political scientists and, and some psychologists are very adept at explaining the world in pithy, simplistic, reductionist usually, you know, neoclassical capitalist modes. Uh, and, and I would like to suggest that um, anthropology needs to pick it back up and assert ourselves and, and push this messiness and complexity and the beauty of, of humanity. And, and we're not doing that sufficiently. And so I think it's really important that anthropology regain its public prominence or public foothold, at least, in the debates. Um, because I think there is much to lose. And I think we're seeing that right now. Um, the level of public discourse is atrocious at the moment. And part of that is because many of the people who should be participating are not. So 
you meant you mentioned earlier maybe maybe you can clarify it a bit because you mentioned some of the debates within anthropology which you felt like caused them to lose i don't know they've they foothold in the and did that have to do with um the debates of sociobiology and and reductionism okay so maybe you can say something about that so that people know so they're, this, they're, they're today sort of referred to as the science wars right like are we scientists mm. or not you know are we hardcore evolutionary theorists or are we hardcore ethnographic constructivists constructivists um and, and the problem is you know e e any fundamentalism in my opinion is misplaced um and it's harmful to intellectual inquiry so whether you think there's an extreme, you know, I, if you want to be an extreme constructivist or an extreme reductionist, you're wrong, period, when it comes to the human, right? You can have those opinions, but they're not going to be helpful in understanding the complex, really dynamic, developmental, processual process, uh, context in, in which the human is. So I think this debate over how much science to include or not include, or how reductionistic or constructivist to be, how deterministic or how open to be. Um, those debates are good debates, but in the actual work, you need to be more integrative and be intellectually generous and open to different possibilities of methodological and theoretical threads uh, to, to do the best work possible. Um, so that's not the best answer to your question, but but I think you get the gist that um, I, I think right, in yeah. an intellectually generous landscape where there are multiple theoretical and methodological approaches, some of which are conflicting, are all in play and part of the discourse. Okay. No, that's good. Thanks. So I, I, still, I still want to continue here a bit because it, it seems to me that you could, well, let me throw this out. You could say that it's anthropology's moment now in the public domain. And by, by this, I mean that a lot of the, 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 very, you know, the very prominent discussions we're having now, let's say about gender, about race, or whatnot. These were these were anthropology's domain uh, at at some point, but now, you know, now we have uh, gender departments. You know, we have, right. I mean, you have uh, you have religious studies as well. Let's say a lot right. of these areas which anthropology, I don't want to say owned, it was you, but your domain have are now in different departments. So what what does that mean for anthropology as an academic discipline within the university context? I don't think it means anything because many of the people staffing okay. those departments have anthropology degrees. <laughs> I mean, I think, <laughs> I see, I I think see. What's, what's really interesting is, look, um, the world does not come in prepackaged uh, sets called departments or disciplines, right? We have created the university and we have created the modern university that is, consists of these strange walled off silos uh, that we call departmental or disciplinary units. Um, now, there are methodological and theoretical threads, right, that sort of put together these trajectories of theory and method. However, um, to say something is a discipline should not mean that something has impermeable boundaries or that something cannot be subdivided or augmented and, and, and collapsed into others. I, I think, uh, you know, I'm not advocating for collapsing departments or dividing them up, but I am suggesting that um, we move away from thinking of departments or sort of historical disciplines as the units by which knowledge is structured and rather think of them as different schools, attempts, or you know, modes of inquiry, um, so that we don't think of them as fixed ways in which the world is distributed. Okay, okay, that, that's very interesting. I mean, I'm I'm actually I'm actually all on board with that suggestion. 
Because I, I, I was just thinking about this earlier. It seems like you, you could say anthropology is just sort of dispersing itself into these different departments, you know, right. um, which I guess interesting for you is not a problem at all. Um, well, as long as we maintain anthropology departments, right? So I think there's a good place for okay. training and engagement. But if, if we can, like, distribute our, our graduates into multiple departments and outside of the academy into government and sort of business and other areas, if we can infuse anthropology into the world, I'm all for it. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Let's let's shift gears a bit, perhaps, and I I want to talk about a bit more here about theology and anthropology and the relation between these two disciplines. So I was reading an article um, the other day by Tanya Lerman, and I believe she's a she's a, a I don't think she's a Princeton though, but anyway, at anthropologist. She's I'm, an not, anthropologist I'm not sure where she is. Stanford. Stanford. Yeah. Okay. And she has this uh, this line she wrote, which she said, "Anthropologists have a problem with God." <laughs> And um, uh, so I want to talk a bit about the relationship now between anthropology and theology, because it seems to me that historically, at least, and still presently, perhaps, uh, they, there was a tense, or there has been mm -hmm. a tense and even outright hostile relationship between these two disciplines. So uh, in your opinion, um, why do you think this was the case? I mean, do you think this just came down to fundamental misunderstandings? And, and do you think this is still maybe the case in some areas within uh, anthropology in terms of how they understand theology? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I'm going to open by plugging a book that is not out yet, but will be out in the not too distant future by John Marks called Why Are There Still Creationists? Um, and it's it really is going to do a great job of of summarizing some of the answers I'm going to give, but really talking about this, this, this important issue. Um, having said that, <clears throat> um, yes, there's a huge problem. Like, I, I'll tell you right now, in the broader academy, there is a fairly substantial discrimination against different peoples of faith, right? Uh, different religious traditions, not just the Abrahamic traditions uh, across the board. There's a kind of leeriness or wariness, particularly in the biological or evolutionary sciences of, of, of people who are overt in their faith traditions and practices, right? Uh, uh, who uh, Lerman would maybe term believers. Um, I think in anthropology, there's also a, um, uh, a wariness um, because of the traditional association with particularly in the United States and, and in the UK of the Abrahamic traditions and particular uh, threads of Protestant Christianity being very antagonistic towards much of the work of anthropologists, whether evolutionary anthropologists and talking about human evolution or social cultural anthropologists, right? You know, the two groups that have fought probably more than anything have been missionaries and uh, Protestant missionaries and uh, um, uh, mm. social anthropologists. So I, I think this is a very important reality that there are some real conflicts uh, that have real world implications. Um, so, so there's that depth. There's also this sort of, um, as you probably well know in the academy, um, a, a very strong antagonism uh, that, that, that's, that's born of a kind of arrogance um, because uh, frequently people in the academy are not practitioners of particular faith, or at least not overtly so. Uh, and they, they see those who, who wear their faith on their sleeves, as it will, um, who are overt about it as, as less than, right? They, they don't think that they are equal as thinkers. Um, so there's all of these biases inherent in there, and and I think that's that's a real problem because that's bad scholarship, right? That's bad intellectual engagement. Um, so I, I think 
uh, when, when Lerman says anthropologists have a problem with God, it's absolutely true, even though anthropologists are supposed to be cultural relativists and supposed to understand the complexity in human societies and that belief is mm -hmm. real, right? Yeah, right. So cultural constructs, beliefs are real for those who hold them. Uh, and and right. that's, that's not a light statement. That's a real important one. And so, I mean, we could, there's a lot to say about this, but I think um, a lot of academics in general need to get over themselves and realize that belief is the normal state of existence. That is, it is a way of being in the world for the vast majority of humans, uh, a ascription to a particular faith tradition or system. Um, and so to deny that as a central part of the human experience is simply ignorant. Right. No, and I know you, you know, you, you will say things like, you know, everyone's bringing some kind of faith commitments to the yeah. table. And I think we're much more aware now of, uh, yeah, the way this, I don't know, certain hidden biases we're all bringing in, assumptions we're bringing to the table. I think we're much more aware of how that happens kind of across the board, which mm -hmm. is maybe yeah. why we're creating more of a space now for theologians and anthropologists to talk a bit more openly. And, and I think one so, thing that's very powerful is that theologians bring methodological, right, and theoretical toolkits to really produce effective inquiry about faith, right, about traditions, about commitments, um, whereas a lot of the traditional social scientific engagements are just critical of those commitments, right, rather than really trying to sort of think through them and, and explore the structural um, components and the commitments themselves. Right. So that's, that's interesting, because I was going to, I had another question, I think, um, that that feeds off what you just said. Because it seems to me that it's very, it's very easy to see what theologians can gain from anthropology. And I, I could talk endlessly about, about my own experience on that. But it might not be so clear what an anthropologist can gain from, from engaging theologians. And it seems to me you just gave some indication there about how you might see what anthropologists could learn from theologians. I don't know if you have anything more to say on that. I mean, I learned directly from my work with theologians how to be much more serious and um, observant and mindful and intellectually engaged with uh, belief, uh, faith traditions, and faith commitments as central components of the human experience and to treat them as, as such, right? So I, for me now, a, a faith commitment, a belief, is as central to my understanding of the human experience as our genes, bones, and muscles. Um, I don't think mm -hmm. you can not take that approach given our full understanding. And, and it's really been my engagement with a lot of theologians that has enabled me to sort of think with this in a very anthropological way, rather than to just bring my own personal baggage and bias to the, to the sort of discussion. Right, I see. So, how, how just out of interest, how did you get into this whole um, interaction with with theologians? I'm obviously before being a Princeton, you were at Notre Dame, so it it started there, I presume. So maybe you could just say a bit about how that all began for you. I mean, there are a couple tracks, but but being at Notre Dame um, really opened my eyes to some of. Uh, I mean. I had, you know, grown up in multiple faith traditions, but really ascribing to none in the sense of a practitioner, um, more of the cultural sort of affiliations. Um, but really being at Notre Dame uh, showed me an, an integrative moment of different patterns and contexts of faith tradition intertwined with academic commitments 
uh, and engagements. And, and I thought that was uh, particularly interesting. And we can go on more length at that. And that shifted from my, you know, childhood experiences with Catholicism and Judaism and things like that, and my deep sort of cultural immersion uh, to a more academic sort of uh, in, intellectual engagement. Um, and so I found that interesting and was beginning to explore some of these things. Um, and it, it's really, um, I was sort of moving in that direction uh, when I met Celia Dean Drummond, actually. Uh, I was one of the I, uh, folks who interviewed her when she first um, uh, um, uh, applied to Notre Dame. And now she's moved on to, to Oxford, which is, and has a fantastic new, uh, the Laudato Si Center. Um, but in a conversation with Celia, in that first conversation, we had such an amazing time and so resonated and bounced yeah. ideas. I thought, wait a minute, you know, here's a, here's a scholar that I could collaborate with. And, and, and then through that and my time at the CTI, right, the Center of uh, Theological Inquiry here in Princeton in 2012 on a sort of inquiry on human nature, which brought together anthropologists, theologians, philosophers, biologists to sort of think together. All of those things really opened my eyes and mind uh, to the potential benefits of collaborating with an expanded academic and intellectual landscape that included theologians. So, and collaboration for you doesn't mean something like we have to all reach consensus and agreement about anything i know you you're much happy you you you're very comfortable with uh not reaching agreements and yeah. um messiness so to speak well i mean i i work on humans and and social mammals right. and complex organisms it's like if i really believe that my quest my intellectual commitment and my investigations are going to discover the truth a single truth, uh, then I'm I'm completely mistaken. Um, I'm much I'm quite comfortable with uh, seeing the the range of probable truths and narrowing them down to some very likely candidates and having a better understanding of systemic processes. And so sometimes the better understanding of systemic processes means ending up with two or three competing possibilities, right? That generate new questions, that stimulate new and more refined investigation. And I think sometimes if you're only reading literature that agrees with you, if you're only meeting with folks that agree with you, um, the quality of your research suffers. Right, I, I totally agree. You know, I, I had a, I, I think I've mentioned this to, this to you before, but I, I had a, a bit of like an aha moment with, with uh, Tim Ingold when we were at a conference in London. So, so I presented at a conference in London with, uh, organized by Augustine and Celia Dean Drummond and, um, Tim Ingold, um, the British social anthropologist, gave a presentation, a keynote address, and we, a bunch of us were talking to, to Tim Ingold afterwards. Um, and he said something which really struck me. I, I think he's, it was something along these lines. He said, you know, I'm beginning to think that dialogue with, with theologians is, is something that anthropologists should be getting into, you know. But he said, when, sometimes when I listen to theologians talk, I don't know if he was referring to um, at the conference. I think I was guilty of this. I mean, he said, I worry that theologians are trying to sound like anthropologists, you know, <laughs> and, and, he, and he said, he said something like this, I want to know what you believe about the world. You know, I don't want you to tell me what anthropologists think about something. I want to know what you think. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, I've, I should have, it maybe seems a bit obvious now in retrospect, but I guess I had this sort of anxiety that I needed to, um, make sure that what I was saying was going to be kosher for, 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 for anthropologists or whatnot. Anyway, it just freed me up to be much more confident about the own tradition that I'm coming from. And, for, and, and an anthropologist truly acting as an anthropologist should be in the disposition of, 
I'm interested in hearing what you believe and think, and then we can talk after that, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's so, such an important, that's, but that is the kind of intellectual generosity that has to uh, infuse anthropological inquiry. Otherwise, we're selectively taking the stuff we like and ignoring the stuff we don't like. And that, that's not the way you collect data. Right, right. Yeah, I think that, yeah. Anyways, I could talk endlessly about Tim and Gold, as you know, so maybe, yeah. we, should, maybe we should move on to um, some of your, your recent research. So you currently, you know, you had two books come out pretty recently, um, The Imaginative Spark, and then, the, and then more recently, 2019, Why We Believe. And both works are now focusing more directly on human origins and, and the story of our, of, our, of our human evolution. So perhaps, you know, for, for those who don't know too much about this, I, I wonder if you could give us a brief little summary uh, about the, the, the history of our species or the hominid lineage. Because, you know, I have, a th I have a feeling a lot of people know things like, well, I know they were Neanderthals and something happened to the Neanderthals. But I don't think people know too much about all these other species that, that are part of the hominid lineage that are no longer around. So anyways, I, I don't know if you want to give us a brief, brief little spiel about that little evolutionary story, if it's, if it's possible. Let me do this as quickly as possible. <laughs> Sometime between about 16 and 10 million years ago, um, there's uh, the, the, the planet of the apes really existed. That is, ape-like creatures, what we call hominoids, ancestral to contemporary apes and humans, arranged across much of the planet. Um, and and um, from these diverse lineages arose a particularly interesting lineage, um, probably in the circum-Mediterranean region, and then sort of began flourishing in Africa, probably Central, Eastern, and Southern Africa. And we're going to call this lineage the hominins. Uh, and by about six or seven million years ago, this thing we're calling hominins, which is sort of very ape-like, but has these modifications that enable them to, to walk on two legs instead of on four, um, and to spend lots of times in the trees, but also lots of time on the ground. And between about 7 million and 4 million years ago, some branches of these hominins become very, very adept at spending the vast majority of their time on the ground and start to diversify behaviorally um, and structurally in ways that are very interesting, including by about three and a half million years ago to start taking stone and modifying that stone slightly. So probably using, you know, tools and a variety of other things that other thing, uh, organisms like chimpanzees, orangutans, what have gorillas use. But but by about three million years ago, these hominins, these bipedal ape-like creatures, are starting to shape stone. And they diversify into a number of different lineages between about, you know, three and two million years ago. And one of those lineages is particularly interesting, and that's the genus Homo. That's our own genus. We're Homo sapiens, uh, the, the current only surviving species of that genus. But for the last two million years, right, this genus Homo diversifies into a bunch of different populations and forms. Um, some people call them different species, other people don't, but there's a lot of diversity. And the majority of that diversity is not just in the morphology and the way we look, but it's in the cultural capacities, their ability to manipulate the world around them, to create no, new tools, to create new ecologies, to move into explore into new places. And so the real transition that happens in the last two million years is we become a lineage of organisms, right? The genus Homo, who can look at the world, see how it is, see the world around them, imagine wholly new possibilities, take the materials of the world, restructure them, and try to create new 
things, new social things, new material things, new ecologies. Um, and over the last two million years, we have a very good record of this pattern and process and the current instantiation of that incredibly creative, imaginative, and very complex lineage is us. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. Is there is there like a particular moment in that story that I don't know brings you real awe? You know, besides obviously the, uh, I, I mean, our emergence at some point. Um, but I'm wondering. I mean, is there any part in that story or any specific theses that people don't talk too much about that might really amaze you? There are a million theses there. There are a million events that just, <laughs> as you can tell, really just spark my imagination. Uh, but there's a couple that I think are, are really, truly fascinating. One is probably um, between three and 500,000 years ago, um, a change in the way in which our ancestors sort of saw themselves and saw the world around them. And we see the material evidence of this in different kinds of symbol and meaning making, and symbols problematic, but meaning making, changing of material items. In short, I would, I argue actually in my uh, last book that it's in this time period that we start to see evidence of the transcendent, right? Of the more than the here and now, of the non-material but wholly felt playing a central role in human evolution and human daily lives and human structures. Uh, and that the sharing of this information and this sensation becomes central. So that's one. And, and, and the development of that over the last, let's say two, three, four or 500,000 years, I think is an, an amazing story. It's a very difficult one to tell, but it's a really interesting one. And the second one is uh, in a number of different places between about 20,000 and maybe 35,000 years ago, different groups of humans and different groups of wolves got together and started mm -hmm. hanging out and they mm -hmm. reshaped each other's bodies and neuroanatomies in such an incredible way that today, thousands of years later, you know, I, I am, I, she, my dog's outside right now, but you know, she and I will gaze into each other's eyes and sort of reenact <laughs> this sort of human wolf mm -hmm. interaction uh, from 30,000 years ago. Uh, this, this ad advent, of domesticatory processes and these incredibly complex, mutually co-constitutive relationships between humans and other animals and plants is a really amazing story as well. No, that's, I, you know, there's so much we take for granted, you know, um, and it, it is really deeply, I, I find it deeply awe-inspiring to think about these, this lineage and these, these other species and our ancestors and what they went through and what they did. I mean, even if you just think about tool making, we can look at some of those tools and think, oh, that doesn't look that great. Um, you know, and I could do that, but actually it's like, no, you couldn't. Um, you'd probably hurt yourself a lot. Um, so even, even basic tool making was extremely difficult. Um, so, and and, it, and it, it's also, I, it, anyway, should, it should be humbling, right? It, it should remember, yeah. remind us how difficult the entire human story and how unlikely the human story is, right. and yet how distinctively relevant that deep history is to our trials, tribulations, successes, loves, everything today. And so I, I think... I think there are lessons here. And then there are other things that the past doesn't inform us about. And, and I think understanding the past is really central to understanding where we are today and where we could be in the future uh, because of what it tells us and what it doesn't tell us. Right. So you, you, you don't like this idea of like a, 
human suddenly appearing on the scene, you know, like a, I don't know, some kind of moment, thinking about a, a moment in which became human. I don't know, that moment could be associated with a number of things, but primarily it's it primarily it's associated probably with language. Yeah. So you don't like thinking about a moment. Um, so how, how do you go about thinking about it? Because I think this is a temptation. It's very hard not to think about at some point there was an la animal with language and at some point there they, they wasn't. So, you know, something happened there, really dramatic, and we need to understand when and how that happened. Language, just like our hands, feet, tongues, digestive anatomy, um, uh, tool-making capacities, um, all of those things, language is a process, right? It, 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 it evolved over time and it's in evolving right now. So, I mean, I, I think this idea of sort of, this is the dividing line between human and not human, between modern human and, and primitive human, all of these things are anti-evolutionary, they're anti-science, and mm -hmm. they just don't make any sense. I am not a creationist. There was not a creation moment, a snap, where the appearance of one, right, replaced the, the, the appearance of something else or something came de novo into the world. That's not the way the world works. Um, we know that 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 sort of processual change over time is the way in which organic life transitions, right? And so understanding those processes, that's the challenge. Um, and it's much more magical and awe-inspiring. Um, the idea that, right. poof, there was a human moment or human revolution just happened, that's, that's not even really an explanation, and it's boring. So um, I, I really... <laughs> You know, like you said, I, you know, I'm very comfortable with messiness and complexity um, because it offers much more promise for the future. Right. I don't know. One big debate that happened uh, with in archaeology, primarily, I believe, is is that this 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 issue um, about how to think about behaviorally modern humans and anatomically modern humans. So, um, I, I some people call it the the sapiens paradox, um, and yeah, maybe you could say something about this because this is an interesting, um, this is an interesting so, issue, you know. And I wonder if you could maybe say some things about it in your own take on it. It's a completely false dichotomy and an erroneous representation <laughs> of the data. So it was fairly accurate thirty or forty years ago when we didn't have as much data, right? So now mm -hmm. we know that things that we call anatomically modern, and that's a that's a very dubious term. Whenever you see modern associated mm -hmm. uh, with with something about humans, you need to be careful because this stems from colonialist and sort of racialized mm -hmm. narratives and these kinds of contexts. But let's set that aside and just say that anatomically modern is a particular set of morphologies. So that was assumed to show up around 50,000, then it was about 120,000, then it was 180,000, then it was a little over 200,000. Now we know it's at 300,000. So basically, there's no such thing as a sort of dividing line for contemporary anatomy. That is the anatomy that characterizes all living humans today shows up in different forms and contexts over the last at least 300,000 or more years, right? It doesn't show up as a package. Right, right. So that's right. So there's no such thing as anatomically modern humans, period, right? Except for those today, right? There are contemporary humans, and then there are humans who lived in the past, right? So we can mm -hmm. take the anatomy off the table, not because it's not important, but because it's not a package that just shows up poof out of nowhere. It is, like everything else, a, a collection of things that evolve over time. So that's important. Uh, the second thing is this idea of a human revolution of behavioral modernity, of like this sort of suite of things, like let's say cave art and you know, uh, microliths, you know, particularly very small uh, kinds of tools, bone tools, this kind of collection 
used to be thought of as this designates modern humans, right? 50,000, no 60,000, no 80,000, no 100,000, no 120,000. And now it looks like every single one of those units that was said, this is absolutely human, either shows up with things that are clearly not contemporary humans, like Neanderthals or Homo erectus or these kinds of things, or shows up at multiple time frames and periods in, in different places across the planet. Again, the data clearly show that becoming human is a process, and that process ramped up in complexity and dynamics over the last three to 500,000 years. That's the story. Um, it doesn't sound right. as good, but scientifically and intellectually, it's much richer and more rewarding. Right. Yeah, so I, I think that, so there was a temptation to think with the explosion of cave art and all the stuff, you had something definitively new, right? And I, 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 I've, yeah, I must say, I never was, con <laughs> when I read about this, I was never convinced. I mean, I just, it's, you know, one thing to say, anyways, I, so it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that this is basically no longer an issue. In your, well, no, it's still an issue for opinion. some because people don't want to let it go. But look, if you're mm. really doing the investigation to human evolution effectively, every time there's new data and now there's new data almost on a monthly basis, you have to sit back and say, does this new data fit with the current hypothetical sort of scenarios, the, the current theoretical understanding and the current data? How does it modify or change the way in which our interpretations fit or don't fit with the data? And if it doesn't fit, then you've got to get rid of it. Right, right. So you're, you're, you're a proponent of what's become, become known as the extended evolutionary synthesis. So I think a lot of people might not know too much about what's going on within, the, with, within these debates, you know, um, uh, regarding uh, what evolutionary theory looks like now. So uh, I was hoping that maybe you could say a few things about this. I mean, if it's if there's an extended evolutionary synthesis, it's extending something. So what what was it extending, you know, and why and and is it widely um, accepted in your opinion, or are there still contentions about this? Well, over the last 160 years or so, right, since Darwin and Wallace first uh, jointly presented and published the paper uh, for the Royal Academy, um, you know, uh, sort of outlining descent via modification, via natural selection, um, that set of processes that we term evolutionary theory, right, um, has been expanding. Right, uh, we ex add, uh, we've refined our understanding of natural selection. We've added with population genetics, both genetic drift and gene flow. We've re recognized with the understanding of genomics, the role of mutation of neutral and sort of deleterious and positive mutations. Um, we've also begun to understand developmental processes in a much more sort of refined way and how developmental trajectories and components uh, interact at levels above the genetics. So we have this whole epigenetic cl clusters, right? All of these things functioning outside of the DNA that affect the way the DNA works. Um, and we can add multiple other contexts, such as niche construction, which is the mutual mutability between organisms and their environment. That is, rather than the environment just sort of structuring organisms, the two have a mutual relationship where they co-shape one another across generational time. The bottom line is that um, like all theoretical and methodological understandings, as you get more information and understand better the processes at hand, and in this case, biological processes, as our information becomes richer, we understand the dynamics are more complex and there are more ways in which change occurs, is constrained, is facilitated, and is regulated. And so the extended evolutionary synthesis is just the contemporary evolutionary theory that reflects this accumulation of knowledge over the past 160 years or so. Um, and it is sort of the 
current state of the art of what we know about how organic life changes on the planet. Um, and so I think that's an important way to frame it. The debate around it is there are a lot of people who say, no, as of 1975, we knew all we need to know about the main process of evolution or as of 1985 or 1995. And you know what? Those people are just wrong. Um, you know, science doesn't work that way. We don't hit a bar and we're like, okay, we're good. You know, we know everything that the moment a scientist says, I know everything I'm right. You know, they're wrong. Um, and so really the extended evolutionary synthesis, it gets that term buzz. It is moving beyond just to focus on the genes, just to focus on natural selection, not getting rid of those. Those are central to understanding evolutionary processes, but expanding to include a more diverse array of biological, social, cultural, and ecological parameters and processes that affect change of significant traits and patterns across time. Okay, no, that's very helpful. Um, yeah, because it is one striking thing about your recent book, and I don't know if this was intentional, but there's, there's very little reference to uh, natural selection explicitly. I mean, you have some stuff, you talk a bit about genes, and the, but it's, it's not like a driving theme in the book, you know? And I think for some people thinking, coming to the text, like, oh, I'm learning about human evolution, I'm going to expect to hear a lot about natural selection, maybe genes, et cetera, and it's, it's largely absent in your book, which is, oh, um, anyways, it's, actually... it's, very, it's very fascinating. It's there throughout. It is actually there and, it, and it's referenced in many ways, but the point is it's not called that as the primary factor as an explanatory right. tool. It is, it is part right. of this very right. dynamic complex. And so what I'm trying to do is sort of paint for a broader readership, sort of a picture of these complex intertwined dynamic processes that have facilitated the emergence of what we see in contemporary humanity. Um, and to do that, I intentionally do not highlight single processes as more important than others, because I'm trying to paint this dynamic picture. And I think one of the, the failures in uh, sort of evolutionary narratives about the human and about many organisms of recent have been this, say, this sort of focus on, well, it has to be in the genes, or it has to be natural selection, or it has to be these things. Um, when in fact the data suggests that it's a much more dynamic thing. Now, if you're talking about one specific thing in one particular context, yeah, you might highlight a genetic component or, or a selective process or parameter, but in the broader picture to favor one of these processes over others uncritically is problematic. Right, right. So I thought, you know, cause we, we're, we're running out of time here. I thought we could end maybe by talking a bit more about your notion of belief and perhaps its relation to religion and your chapter on religion. So you, when, if someone's picking up your book, why we believe it's the Gifford lectures, you might, someone might be expecting, ah, I'm going to get an explanation about religious belief or something. And that's not the case. That's one, it's one central component about, you know, uh, the human story and what we believe, but it's not, it's, it's not the same as what you mean by belief. So perhaps you can say, what do you mean by belief? You mentioned some of this a bit earlier. What do you mean by belief? And I, I guess I'm also interested to hear from you about the naturalness of religious belief, because I think there's, I don't know if you want to, if that's putting it that way is, is okay with you, yeah. that there's some yep. kind of naturalness about religious belief. Okay, all right, go for it. <laughs> so, okay, really, we have very little time, but here's, here's the, 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 <laughs> my pitch, right? That belief is the human ability to, to look at the world, to see the way it is, to draw on experiences, social, material, developmental, all of those things, to combine all of that with the imagination and with their sort of shared communal creative context and to invest wholly 
in an idea, in a person, in an ephemeral or transcendent experience, invest in that so wholly that it becomes real. It becomes physiologically, mentally, structurally, lived, socially real. That's an incredible capacity, and, and we can document that in multiple contexts. Now, this is not just about religion, right? Because we can talk about belief in many, many different kinds of contexts, belief in different economic patterns, in social systems, in political entities, in love, in a variety of other things. But the religious context is particularly interesting because I divide human capacities for um, sort of religiously associated things into two categories. One is the religiousness, which is what I think is a natural part of being human, this ability to just sort of commit to the experiential context of the transcendent as a central component of experience, right? The, the more than the here and now as a real and necessary part of the world that is influential, as influential as our material surroundings. Um, I think that capacity is ubiquitous in humanity. And I think there's neurobiological and not social and historical reasons for that. And I outlined them in the book. Religion per se, right? Sort of the institutionalization, the, the assignment and structuring of a theological orientation around particular sets of beliefs and practices and patterns, that's religion. And that's much more recent. So humanity is very old. Religion per se is very new. Um, and so my response to that issue is that religiousness is a deep capacity in humanity. Contemporary religions are a current instantiation and structuring of that because of particular historical um, and, and sort of processual uh, uh, happenings. Right. Okay. Well, uh, I think, unfortunately, we're out of time and, you know, we could, we could keep going, I think, for much longer, but we're out of time. And so I, I just, I want to say thank you so much for doing this. It's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for, for having this conversation. And it's such an important conversation. And, you know, this is, I, I wish that more of the academy were having more of these kinds of conversations, right? Because in fact, for all of us who are academics, who spend our lives committed to this kind of life of the mind and inquiry, this is sort of why we got into it um, for, for at right. least the most right. of us. Yeah. And, and in, in our disciplinary boundaries, we do really, in, in, in our training, we try to sort of beat that out of people. And, and I, think, mm -hmm. I think we need to go back to a little bit more of this sort of real efforts to, to strive for knowing as opposed to assert our knowledge. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be nerve wracking, you know, and I think we have to also understand that we're going to make, and, and this is why you, you're so wonderful to work with, because people are going to make mistakes, you know, we're going to, we're, we're not going to know everything and it doesn't matter, you know, the, it's, it's more like the process that we're going through the engagement, right. this matters and people learn and transform themselves, etc. So failure, failure is the central function of the academy. <laughs> I mean, that's how we learn, right? We pr propose things, right. we assess them, we try to figure it out. We're like, oh, that didn't work. What, what's going on? I mean, right, you know, right. I have learned much more from my failures or from disagreements than I have from agreements and from successes. Mm. Mm. All right, let's end it there. Augustine, thank you so much. Thanks. That's all for this episode. For more information about our project, Collaborative Inquiries in Christian Theological Anthropology, visit our website at theologyandscience.org. Thanks for listening.